Welcome to A Penny for Your Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by Sean Bloomgren and Andrew Penny from Central Iowa. On our show, we discuss all things agronomy, high yield management, and give you real-time updates on what we're seeing and hearing in the field. We will also gain insight from industry professionals as we bring you relevant and timely information on current agronomic practices. Thank you for joining us. Well, excited to be back with Ty Barton. Uh, we've covered the science. Now we'll talk about the management. When we think about short corn or plant material, and we think about you know weed control and sunlight hitting the the soil surface, you know, all those components of you know my mind goes to thirty inch rows in soybeans versus mm-hmm. you know versus narrow rows or whatever. So if if we have all the same leaf tissue area, the same width, the same length. Do you have any concern about um, light hit, light penetration, light hitting the ground, weed control, those types of things with, with these short statured hybrids? Yeah, it's so honestly, you get more difference hybrid to hybrid and kind of leaf architecture to leaf architecture than you do tall to short. So okay. within the short pipeline, we have very erect, uplight, upright leaf type. We also have kind of a floppier, lazier leaf. Um, and so depending on which hybrid you get, that's going to have more of an impact on canopy closure really than just being tall or short. So if you think about growth, you know, those, those leaves are extending out over the row. Um, and, and the vertical distance really isn't playing that big of a role because you've got the same length of the leaf spreading out across. So, um, when we put the light bar across the row, we've done this experiment. It's a, it's within a day or two of getting, basically down to 95% light capture. Um, and so we really don't feel like there's any issue there. And again, the same herbicide should work. And as long as we got a clean field to start with, we're going to have a good canopy to keep everything closed. So with the, with the shorter inner nodes, especially before the ear leaf, you have the same leaf tissue mm-hmm. in a more dense area or in a, in a shorter area. Do you see any change in senescence of the the leaves of the plant? Um, yeah, you can. I mean, it it's very situationally specific, right? But if you get not enough light and there's no photosynthesis, so, ugh, sorry, <laughs> photosynthesis happening, then yeah, th- those they'll start to shut down and, yeah. and just slough off. Um, so you do maybe see a little bit of difference, but it re- it's really such a different canopy. Um, starting at about V eight is when you can really start to see the differences. And and you'll see when that uh, log growth phase happens and, and the tall corn really starts to shoot up, you got your short corn and it's just sitting there and it's, it, I mean, it's just spitting leaves out the world. <laughs> it's just not going anywhere, right? So it's like, come on, grow, baby. Um, so Shooting leaves but not growing. Yeah, so it's, <laughs> it's just, it really is a different look. And then by V10, V12, V14, like you really can walk through there and you can experience the difference, right? So thinking through side dressing time and how, you know, you got to be really careful to not pop off the, the tall corn because it's growing so fast, so rapidly, and it's got brittle brittle nodes. You can get across the short corn. It's night and day difference, right? And then uh, I've actually, so I'll, I'll admit this, I've, <laughs> I, uh, I've laid down in the ground in the different canopies, right? So you lay down... <laughs> And you look up through the tall canopy and like you can feel more breeze on your face and, and you can kind of see light filtering in and it's, 
it you do the same thing in the short corn and like i hope you're not claustrophobic because <laughs> it is thick down there um and so there's much less wind movement um you you really are closing in that canopy quite a bit and so it is a different canopy um but in terms of light interception and and the ability to harvest light and fill whatever sink is growing yeah it's it's does a good job so on that in that example you give do you have any worry about respiration or temperature inside that row i mean with there's pros and cons to that yep right but yep. It, it's um it so again it's a different campy we my mind immediately goes to to the pathology piece right so if you've got dew hanging in the crop longer uh what's the what the pathogen interaction going to be with that and and i do i do wonder about the disease triangle right are we are we changing things in the favor of the of the pathogen. So we're going to continue to, to watch that. I'll, I'll tell you from the breeding perspective, we, we screen the bejesus out of these things. So, um, <laughs> throw the kitchen sink at it and see what is good. Um, but, but for sure it's, it's going to interact, but it's not always maybe detrimental either. Right. So we've, we've put, um, watchdog sensors and stuff out there and, and while, yes, there is dew hanging in longer, that dew changes the canopy temperature. We've seen degrees of difference and, you know, in a hot summer day, that can be oh, yeah. a yeah. positive effect, right? And um, I think, I think, yeah, there will be a lot of job security and physiology work going forward as we understand I what should this be good with pathology and physiology. You're going to be great, man. You're going to have <laughs> a lot of job security. But, but yeah, how do you optimize it? I mean, that's... From a from a physiological perspective, I th- I think it's equivalent or has the ability to be equivalent, but how it interacts with the other biotic and abiotic factors, we may have to continue to think about a little bit. Yeah, I, I totally second your just uh, you know the the talking points you had on walking through short corn from from experience walking numerous plots. It's not near as fun as being able to hunk down and get underneath the leaves and mm-hmm. you know have your head close to the ear leaf with traditional corn short corn. Everything's right there. There's Goal. no, there's no ducking down. Try walking 20 inch trials, man. That's a workout. You'll, you'll get your cardio in for sure. So, uh, we, we've kind of touched on, you know, just some of the physiology of the leaves. How, how does in, in your breeding program, you know, thinking back to when you started selecting products to where we're at yep. now, how, how does ear height factor into your breeding program and, and where do you, you know, where, where do you think stress may impact ear height? Yeah. So we knew early on, right. That, your height's going to be a real limiting factor. If again, if, if you don't, yield doesn't count until it gets in the bin. And if you can't pick it, it's not going to count. So one of the ways we use density again, coming from a density program was we, we really pushed it pretty hard uh, so that we could sort out the germplasm and its reaction to that stress. Um, so as you would observe the, the plots and even the lines, um, the ability to keep a stable ear size and particularly to place that ear at a common node all the way down the road through the density was really a great indicator of, of not only density tolerance, but just hybrid, you know, hybrid stability. Um, so whether it was a density stress or drought stress or heat stress or whatever stress, uh, the ability of the plant to maintain a, a consistent uniform phenotype all the way down the row was a great selection tool for us um, as we look through these. So it really kind of solves the problem solved itself, right? So if you if you put things under stress and the ears drop below harvestable range, then they don't yield and they don't advance. So it kind of took care of itself. Is, is that something you kind of look for with traditional plants too? Just consistent oh, for, sure, for yeah. stress yep. tolerance? Yep. 
nope, it's a great indicator in tall hybrids as well. So um, I'm, a, I'm a big proponent of density trials and, and understanding the density curve. And one of the key, key indicators to me as I'm walking density plots is where, where's that ear bouncing to and how much tip back or zip ring do you get in those ears? And that's a big, big indicator of how that germplasm and that genotype specifically is handling, handling stress. What do we know, Ty, about the, the, the plant biomass? So obviously we have closer internodes below the ear. How does that affect overall biomass and especially relative to our um, traditional hybrids? Yeah, so um, we're not changing development, right? So it's still X number of GDUs, 75, 125, whatever number you want to use to, to call a leaf. Um, so it's basically growing at the same time, uh, same rate and, and the amount of leaves is the same. It flowers at the same time. So we're basically producing the same amount of biomass per plant. It's just getting distributed a little bit differently. So in our measuring, you know, we, we know that the inner nodes below the ear are a little bit more compact. They're also a little bit rounder. Uh, the rind is a little bit thicker. I'm talking little bits, like five percentage points. It's it's not very much. Um, but when we look at the total biomass, like it's every hybrid is a little bit different, but we're just slightly less, like okay. you know, maybe five percent uh, less biomass per plant, non-grain. Right? The the ears are the same size. It's just a, a little bit of a smaller plant. I will point you to though. That's the part that we can measure. Um, we've done a little mm-hmm. bit of root work trying to understand right if it's producing the same amount of assimilant. If the shoot sink is a little bit less, well, where's it going? Like it, it has to go somewhere. So we've got some indication that the roots are a little bit bigger um, and potentially growing a little bit deeper, faster than than traditional tall. Roots are really tough. Like we 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 have some data, but it's not ready for publication or anything yet. It's it's really hard to get robust, statistically significant root data. So um, we're going to continue to work on that. But I, I do think we've got enough smoke there and anecdotal data that that we're pretty comfortable saying that the the root profile is pretty nice does that biomass equation change obviously one of the goals with the short statured hybrids is the ability to manipulate density or population does that biomass change much with when you play with the population Mm -hmm. so so as you as you crank up plant population and you have more kind of mouths to feed per unit area, the individual plants themselves are getting smaller, but in totality, the community is a little bit bigger, right? Okay. So we've seen with our silage work, um, like you, we're going to be pretty close to on par with tall hybrids for, for tonnage. Um, but if you want to start tinkering with density and, and push those plant seeding rates up, uh, you can get your tonnage back really quick. And I think that that's the same, whether you're, a grain farmer and worried about stover or a silage guy that's worried about tonnage. Um, you can use density to help manipulate that. You just got to feed it, right? I mean, you got to make sure that those plants and, and uh, you know, whatever the input, nitrogen, fertility, whatever is, is being met. So you see this as a, as a good potential candidate for silage. Yeah. We've had really positive silage results with this stuff. Um, there's a little bit, less stock material, right? So there's a little bit less lignin. The the recalcitrant faction of the of the silage profile is less and and you've got the same ears and good good quality there. So we're actually seeing pretty much on par with DMR level quality. Um and with a little bit more pop you can get the density and the, the tonnage back up 
where it needs to be. And yeah, it's, it's really a positive silage product. Interesting. So uh, I'm, I'm curious too, you know, often in the crop production world, and especially in the physiology world, we often dis- discuss the harvest index, you mm-hmm. know, pounds of grains div- divided by the above ground biomass plus yep. the, the, the grain yep. is what's that look like with short corn? Is that any different than what we see in traditional corn? You know, usually if I'm right, it's about a 0.5, give or take. Yeah. I, I'm of the camp. We're better than 0.5 now. Um, so I think even tall hybrids today, you're, we're getting close to that 55% level. Um, we've done some work with universities, you know, or University of Illinois and Purdue and among others. Um, I really think that in today's production, we should be striving for about 55% harvest index. Um, now with the short corn, I'll tell you, it's, it looks like it's very similar to tall. So whatever rate you are appearing to get, whether that's 0.45, 0. 0.5, 0. 0.55, you're going to get about the same in the short. Um, the thing I do wonder about though is, <clears throat> when it comes to harvest index. So first that root shoot fraction, we don't account for roots in the harvest index number. So nope. is that kind of artificially inflating that number a little bit? The other thing I worry about is, um, there's just no great data about recovered harvest index, right? So we look at harvest index and think about it physiologically. What's the conversion efficiency of, of recovered carbohydrate yeah. into yeah. grain, but what, what happens when we think about harvest index from a recovered by the producer, right? So the marry the physiological harvest index with the, it only counts if it's in the bin, right? Uh-huh. And so you think about like phantom yield loss and things like that. How much does one or two or 3% lodging at harvest mean to recovered yield and recovered harvest index? So kind of going back to, <clears throat> we did some work after the derecho trying to think about not only that, but, you know, recover recovery of carbon and how uh, recovery of inputs and life cycle analysis impacts uh, the profile of the crop. So there's a lot of nuancey stuff there, but um, yeah, on general, it's going to produce about the same harvest index. Interesting. Can I, can I ask a question kind of in that light? So one of the things that we haven't really talked about is, so are you changing any significant management styles? I mean, we, we, we we obviously know about access, but I mean, in terms of grain production, am I, when I use short corn, am I going to approach the crop differently in terms of my micro and macronutrient needs, timing of application, that sort of thing? Yeah. <clears throat> so you certainly don't have to, but I, I hope that farmers are asking themselves, how can I make that more effective and efficient, right? So I think about everything is ROI, right? If you're going to put on an input, what's the, what's the return on that investment? And how do I maximize that? So the easy one to think about with short corn is nitrogen. Um, I think about the farmer that has to go out and put on, you know, however much, 200 pounds of nitrogen in the fall, because that's the only opportunity they have to get everything covered and in on time. And and so they're basically making a huge investment of a resource and input into that crop and then exposing it to Mother Nature for six months to see what she throws at them. <laughs> um, and you know, how much of that goes down the, down the tile and out the river and down into the Gulf. Right. So I think if we can take the advantage of being able to feed this crop when it's actively growing, um, using equipment that's just depreciating in the shed, right. We can use our sprayer and wide drops, or we have another week's worth of tractor and toolbar access. How do we think about making that investment wiser? Um, so macro and micro, Blah. macro and micronutrient needs are the same. It's still 
corn still ZMA, still 10 chromosomes. It still needs all the same things to grow. Um, it just, I think, offers us the opportunity to think about the investment piece of that and how do we expose that investment to Mother Nature. So hopefully what we see is that farmers, uh, producers can take the opportunity to use that that window of, of application uh, to go and put the, the investment in when the crop's going to take it up and pay them back for it. Yeah. So hopefully that means it... <laughs> It may or may not mean less nitrogen, but hopefully that means more nitrogen getting into the crop and less of it going down yeah. the Mississippi River. Yeah, I'm glad, you asked that. I'm glad you asked that question, Sean. I think this is probably one of the things that gets me most excited about short corn. You know, I, I think me and you, even outside the podcast, but definitely within the podcast, we often talk about being more efficient with our, our fertilizer, whether it's yeah. a macro or micro. And just, you know, obviously we have added wind protection with short corn, right? But just the ability to put on nutrients when the plant actually needs it and, and being more efficient is, you know, I, I, th I think something that is important to your point, Ty, you know, you, you mentioned the Gulf of Mexico, but I think also, you know, you think about 10 years ago when 200 bushel corn was a, a good, a, a big mm -hmm. deal. Now we have guys pushing 275 bushel farm averages yep. and we, we can't think about managing the crops the same, right? It, it's going to take a different management style to get to 275 right. bushel versus two, 200 bushel. And, and I think short corn falls perfectly within the, the whole idea of just products now that we're seeing that have higher yield potential than what we've seen in the past mm -hmm. and trying to match that up. Yep. Our, our listeners don't know this. But this has probably been the most efficient we've been at actually staying on our script, but I'm going to go, <laughs> we're, we're, now we're getting derailed. But I, I would say right along with that, right? So the desire to produce um, the most grain we can, manage ROI, like that, that's super important to us. The other piece that I'm really passionate about is the stewardship side of it, right? We get to do this for a moment in time. <clears throat> I almost get choked up when I think about the fact that I was, I was born with access to a piece of the earth. Like that's part of my stewardship. What percent of people in the world get to steward part of the earth, right? Yeah. And so to your point, whether it's from an ROI perspective or just our responsibility to to be great stewards of the land, I mean, I, you know, it's just, we're the luckiest people I think in the world. We get to steward a part of the earth during our, during our lifetime and the decisions we make are important. So yes, from an ROI standpoint, definitely. But just from a, a feeling good about the production we take off of our farm, I think that's really important too. Absolutely. So hey, we're, <laughs> we'll get back on track, but I, <laughs> I, I do. I mean, I think that's both Andrew and I's passion is just do this really, really well in a way that raises yields, raises farm profitability, but also takes into an account leaving our mark on agriculture in an important way. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we've talked about, you know, the harvest index, plant biomass. What what are you seeing in, in terms of population response? You know, that's kind of something I've, I, I've really enjoyed talking with the growers and, and myself pushing population, right? Mm -hmm. But it, it's kind of a whole new ball game when we start, start talking short corn. Yeah. To me, density tolerance, the ability to respond to density is really hybrid driven. Every, every hybrid is as unique as you to me, right? So um, that characterization depends on the hybrid and its response curve to, to population. I will tell you the short corn, the payoff is in the recovery of that yield, right? So having done a lot of years of tall corn density trials, the, the force of the wind on a spindly, just anthracnose chewed out, stressed out stock, you're not going to recover the yield. So uh, by having a shorter, more resilient, more stable plant type, um, you can you can move up 
the density curve a little bit more, your economic return of density is potentially a little bit different because you're lowering the risk uh, of that falling over. Uh, you have a higher rate of return on on that investment in seed. And so I think that's the question that I ask growers when, when they bring up, you know, whether it's narrow rows or high pops or whatever, I'm like, well, what's your yield target? And then what's the best way to try and achieve that? Because it's not just the population, right? You got to feed it, you got to care for it and manage it. And it's, yep. it's an investment in all the inputs, not just in seed. So, um, you know, and then that number's a little bit different for everybody. You got to, you got to pay for all the hidden costs. It's going to be more trucking. It's going to be more of this, more of that. So, um, it really is a, is a function of what's your yield target? What is this farm capable of? And then let's set up the best plan density being a piece of that to try and achieve it. Yeah. Do you see any difference? I guess while we're on the population discussion, what what do you see in in terms? You know, I can think back to doing a lot of trials, boy, ten years ago. What they call the field scripts, I believe. I think it was what mm-hmm. Monsanto called mm-hmm. it. And you know, guys pushing population to thirty nine thousand and just everything falling over. <laughs> and yeah. I, I definitely feel like we're in a different. You know, I, I don't feel like we have that issue anymore. I, I think we've taken care of stock quality. But what are you seeing in terms of? You know, I'm picturing pushing populations to forty two, forty five thousand, whether it's Normal winds or, or derecho type winds. What are you seeing with with short corn? Yeah, th- that's really two separate questions. So, so again, push and pops up past forty. Some of the some soil and some management practices lend themselves to that. And and if the hybrid curve says that it's going to respond in kind, then absolutely it should be on the table, right? Because these hybrids will stand through that. Now, as you talk about the force of the wind, like the hybrid response to that is is a piece of it, but it's it's more than just that, right? So um, short corn doesn't just make it bulletproof automatically. I've walked down fields of short corn. Um, it's usually not wholly the responsibility of the germplasm, to, you know, as the culprit of the failure. But, you know, if you have corn and corn ground that's been overworked and is, you, you get three inches of rain and it turns to soup, there's nothing for the roots to hold on to, short corn is going to blow over. Yep. Um, if you have corn rootworm problems and really hot corn corn rootworm problems. There's no roots holding those plants down is going to fall over. So, um, (laughs) there's, there's only so much that being short can accommodate, but again, I think we're in a much better profile stand. I mean, it's just a much more stable plant type, right? So it can take the force of the wind and be more resilient to it. Um, but really that's a secondary to me, um, question to what the optimum or target density should be. We talked earlier that that there's at least anecdotal evidence of maybe some root mass improvements. What about drought tolerance? Yeah, the so we have a water utilization center out in Gothenburg, Nebraska, and they've been tinkering with short corn and irrigation management for going on six years now. Um, again, it, water management, root anything is really interactive with just about every other variable out there. So it's tough to get that clear, concise data set. So I'll characterize it as there's a lot of smoke around this that says um, these hybrids are able to get roots down deeper, quicker. Um, So that's opening up, you know, a bigger volume of the soil for exploration for both water and nutrients. That can be detrimental, right? If it continues to not rain and you burn through all of your moisture that's held in the soil too soon, then you're going to have nothing left to fill the ear. So um, it's really a dynamic process. But uh, yeah, I mean, the ability to have your roots get down there and and exploring 
more of the soil quicker in growth uh, can only be beneficial in my mind. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think this is the first time we've had a corn breeder on. Is that right? It is. Yeah. I yeah. think this is the first time we've had a corn breeder on, even even if he is from Kansas. <laughs> um, <laughs> we'll still, we'll, we'll pretend we value his uh, insight. <laughs> yeah. Um, so obviously you've spent significant time working in both traditional hybrids and, and now short corn. Yeah. Walk me through kind of as, as you're evaluating hybrids, really, what, what are you looking at? What, what are your main key decision-making when you're, when you're looking at uh, hybrid selection oh, or boy. phenotype advancement, that's I guess. A, that's a loaded question. Is so, that a podcast? That's a, that's a whole nother that's podcast. That's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> um, boy, how do I answer that? Um, okay. So when I was, when I was just starting breeding, I, you know, as I, I've been trained in physiology and ecology, right? And all my breeding expertise I picked up by answering or asking a lot of questions and being very fortunate to have a lot of very, very intelligent folks answer my silly questions. Um, so I kind of made the rounds, you know, hey, what do you look for? Like what really matters to you when you're out looking at either line per se or hybrid combinations? And the most succinct answer I got was from a, a breeder up in, in Olivia, Minnesota, and and Marv told me, Marv Borboom, uh, who is just a legend, he said, just make great products. The rest will take care of itself. <laughs> and it I'm sounds like, easy. Oh, <laughs> that's super yeah. easy, Marv. Thanks. Yeah. Um, now I got it. <laughs> turns out it's really, really hard um, because there's no perfect hybrid, right? So you're always, it seems like, giving up one thing to get the other thing. Um, you can get tremendous yield, but then it'll fall over. You could get really great standability, and then it doesn't have the yield. Or you have really good tolerance to whatever pathogen, pick your poison, but, oh, crap, it sucks for this thing over here. So um, it's, really, it's really trying to find that right balance. And what is the hybrid? What's the genetics that individually try to check all the boxes and then putting together a portfolio or a pipeline of things that really cover each other and, 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 you know, hit the different pieces, right? So that when you get invited to uh, go onto a farmer's field and you can place five hybrids that all have their strengths and weaknesses, but in totality kick ass, that's what we're <laughs> shooting for. So Love the it. good end um, goal. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. You're, so, you should make a shirt that says breeder's goal, kick ass. Yeah. Yes. Make awesome hybrids. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's my, I guess, most succinct answer is just make great products. And, and it's no one thing. It has to be the whole package. Um, and that just comes with a lot of being out and looking and understanding, right? Cause you gotta, you gotta evaluate the portfolio or your program and drought stress and heat stress and disease and that and this and it's just a lot of understanding what are all the pieces of data that you need to consider that matter. Um, what are the, like, how aggressive do I need to be in any given thing so that I can be competitive? Uh, and then just having a good handle on what's the other guy trying so that I'm making sure that I'm evaluating and considering that too, right? So, um, yeah, it's always evolving, ever an ever-moving target. Interesting. So as I, as I thought of this question, I thought since this was the first time we were going to have a corn breeder on, I thought maybe I'd ask, what, what, what are your favorite top three phenotypic traits you look for 
And I ask mm, that because that's a great question. If you if you were to ask me or to picture a corn breeder, I picture a corn breeder walking through a corn plot with notes and, and yeah, taking, taking yeah. notes. That's how I picture a corn breeder. So I wanted to ask that when, when you're looking or for Or laying on the ground looking yeah. for the yeah. canopy here. Yeah. <laughs> so what are you looking for? What would you say your top three phenotypic traits? Maturity, you know, everything aside, just what what do you look for? Okay. So phenotypic only. Okay, so so here's how I ran my nursery. So disease tolerance should be expected, right? So when I was screening through materials, we threw literally the kitchen sink at it. Um, we wanted to make sure that if we got something commercialized, that it was going to be as good or better than everything else in the marketplace for its disease profile and package, right? So that's the... that's. An easy one, um, checking for that disease tolerance and stay green at the end of the year. The next one um, is really stability. And and there's no one metric for that. It can present itself in different ways. So it can present itself in the field as that stable, uniform ear height and consistent ear size and every plant looking just the same ping, 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 ping down the row. Like that's that's just a home run hybrid. If you can across locations and states and stress levels see that consistent, uniform, stable phenotype, that is, oh, that's A number one. Um, and then for for the last one, I really, I think it's, you got to go back to the inbred parent, right? Because ultimately how that line performs and the cost of goods of that line is going to be paramount to the success of the hybrid. And so if you fail to make a good inbred, you'll never have a successful hybrid. So uh, we loosely would call them cost of goods traits, but in the female, that's good kernel size, good ear size, lots of good yield. On the male, it's all the tassel and those notes mm -hmm. and things that we would consider. But you got to have really all three of those things to have a knock it out of the park hybrid. Awesome. Interesting answers. I think the whole industry, at least everybody that I know paying attention to the short corn thing kind of wants to know what, where's this thing go? I mean, mm -hmm. we're, we're, we're obviously walking before we run, right? We're, we're, yep. we're rolling short corn out, but where do you see this thing going? Yeah, that's <laughs> your magic cape ball is better than mine. <laughs> um, so I'll answer it this way. Ultimately the farmer's going to decide, right? Um, I feel like we have, really a competitive offering uh, to put in the marketplace. The yields are going to be as good or better as what we've seen and experienced with our current lineup. Um, the management of that may be slightly different, right? And that's the part I I, I don't know. I can't foresee. Like, we're going to figure this thing out as we go. Um, but, you know, ultimately, I think there will be a home for it. And, and um as growers experience that and the attributes and the, you know, the, the good and the bad that will come along with it, like it'll, it'll kind of sort itself out. I, I do think that there's, you know, double digit percentage volumes of this that are, that are going to be in the mix. Um, there's always going to be a home for tall corn, right? I mean, yep. we cover the Lus Hills, we cover the Sand Hills of Nebraska, we cover oh, that good, good soils, South Southern Illinois and Southern Indiana. Like there's going to be places where we need some height on things. Um, but, but yeah, where the, where the wind blows and the corn gets too tall. Like I think that there's a good home for this thing. So 
I don't know. I, I just hope that, you know, we're competitive and that farmers give it a shot and, and understand that, you know, they get to play with this and, and have a say in how this thing goes and what they're ultimately going to do with it. So, um, you know, I hope we get the chance to, to make that case to them and hopefully partner and, and work it together going forward. It's a little bit cliche, but we often talk about, you know, as a, as a grower, you only get, you know, 30 to 60 crops, whatever that is, you know, Mm -hmm. depending on how long you're lucky to farm. And obviously short corn isn't necessarily duratio proof, but I was standing right on the other side of the wall. We're recording this podcast. And when the duratio came through here, and I remember just this really disheartening feeling that's happened each and every time we've had crop failures due to wind damage. Yeah. And it's, and it's, to me, it's one of the most hopeless feelings in the world because you spend so much money and so much energy and, and then almost like this immeasurable hope to learn, you know, whatever yeah. you learn. And, and, you know, we, we have insurance and we have, you know, we have protection mechanisms built in to hopefully allow us to farm the next year, the year the duration went through. I mean, that's probably the largest testing pool we had ever done within our dealer network. So we had so many growers engaged in so many different products and, and, and testing theories and concepts, and it's just gone, you know? And it's like, there's, you, you can't really measure what you give up that day. You know, we can measure the insurance claims and all that kind of stuff, but just kind of that, that intrinsic desire to do better, you know, there, there's a cost to that. That's, that's really hard to make up. But, um, so Andrew has done a nice job uh, when when we invite guests on, kind of just you know just thanking people and acknowledging their you know their impact. As we've been talking, I, I keep thinking about you taking trips to Mexico in 2010 and 2011 and 2012 and exploring this concept. And I guess my mind goes to we're incredibly lucky in this industry to have people who invest in concepts far before their reality, right? I mean, and I I can only imagine you know, some of the flights down there and, and, and some of the time driving around in Mexico, just, <laughs> yeah. just going, man, is, is this, am I even headed in the right direction? And I guess I, I think of some of the, the people have made, you know, radical impacts in agriculture in technology development, things like that. You know, you, you have to commit to that far before you get yeah. any recognition for it. And so yeah. I'm very grateful for, you know, the, the now what, 12, 12 year journey, 12, 12, 12 or 13 years, yeah. year journey. Yeah. Um, would you share just kind of, kind of for the fun of it, do you have a, maybe an early story from, from trips to Mexico or, or, you know, I mean, <laughs> that I can share publicly. I yeah, mean, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. So, so, so Mexico's ahead of us in the U S they've actually commercialized a hybrid and, and I was fortunate enough to go down for some of their launching. Um, my, my Spanish is not great. I can <laughs> like I I can make do. I can order food and find the bathroom and generally get a sense of what's yeah. getting talked about, but I, I miss a lot. So they assigned me like an interpreter and I would just hang back and so uh I would I would catch the stragglers and then I would use through through her kind of ask them, so what do you think? Like, you know, we're sitting at the big launch and they got all the big plots and like, hey, look at this cool hybrid and and I I would just talk to those farmers because I saw it as, you know, how is this an indication of how farmers are going to think about it up here? And, um, so we would, I would talk to them and, you know, we'd be having lunch before we go to the plot. And I, you know, do you know why you're here? What, have you seen this before? No, no. Okay. And then I would watch these guys 
as we're rolling out the hybrids, what they look like, the attributes, like this is what it's going to look like at harvest. Here, husk some ears. Let's look at this stuff. And I would watch their face, like just, you could see the gears starting to go like, oh man, like I'm going to be able to do this. And then I can try that. And then we're going to roll in some of this. And I'm like, oh, that's pretty cool. So um, I made it a point when we started doing this kind of thing up here and and actually taking farmers out to plots and some dealers out to plots. And like I make it a point to watch their face the first time that they see it. And uh, like it's so cool because like we can present what we know about the hybrid, right? We've been testing these things for years. It's kind of old hat. Um, we think we know what we've got. But when you can see a farmer envisioning it in their field, in their management system, and how they're going to start tinkering with it, it's like you can see it. You can visibly see it on their face. Like their uh, their eyes start to light up, and you can just see the gear, like smoke's rolling out, and it's it's really cool. Um, the to, pure impact in agriculture. Yeah, like you get, you're it. providing yeah. a tool. It's just a tool. It's a tool in the box, but it's going to be... Uh, it's going to open up a lot of opportunity to think about things differently. Um, disruptive, I guess, is a word that people throw around, but like, it's just going to be a cool way for guys to think about managing their crop. And so that's been, I'll never forget that trip to Mexico because it was my first time experiencing farmers experiencing the short corn yeah. and, and what they thought. And it's cool because it doesn't matter if you're in Sinaloa, Mexico or in the middle of Iowa somewhere, like it's the same reaction by the farmers. So yeah, that's, that's that was cool. really cool. I know every year when we, when Andrew and I go through product placement and we, we think about where to put products, you know, certainly through most of uh, the geography we work, wind is always a consideration, but, <laughs> but access and management, all those things. I, I guess I just, I want to make sure on behalf of, you know, Andrew and I and our listeners, just thanks for the, years of effort before there was probably a high level of confidence where the thing was yeah. going. Cause it, 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 it certainly is just a tool, but I, I'm excited about the tool and I think it's going to be a, a really important one. So I'm wondering, did you somehow bring this derecho? Did you have any influence yeah. on that? <laughs> he rain danced up no. a derecho in Mexico. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Make so. this short corn thing look more appealing. Yeah. So I, so yeah, you mentioned the derecho before I, I tell you, I, I have never been more depressed than I was the two weeks after that. Like just driving around and I, I mean, I'm working, right. I'm taking notes and I'm trying to understand what the hell's going on after this thing. And, um, it just, oh, your heart just goes out to the guys that were out. Like they're going around me with the disc, right. Just yeah, turning yeah. it under. And I'm like, my God, this was 250 bushel corn before that damn windstorm hit. Yeah. Um, and, and so I took a little solace in the fact that, you know, Hey, here I'm out taking notes in the middle of all this devastation on stuff that's still upright. So that, you know, that was, that was nice, but gosh, it was just, um, it was awful. It was just the worst. And, and so, yeah, it, I hope that it, it's not bulletproof, right? I don't want to ever say we've beat mother nature because then she's going to come and whoop us upside (laughs) the head, but she'll show us real um, quick. (laughs) You know, it is, it is better and it does offer more, more stability and, and resistance and tolerance to the wind, the forces of the wind. And the other thing too that I'll mention is I, I'm just one guy, right? And any breeder, any researcher will tell you, you're only as good as your team, right? So we, yes, I was like the point person for it, but 
there's a team of people in Huxley that have worked on this. Like we had, we had nurseries out in 2012 when the drought hit and like, you want to talk about miserable. This stuff was short, 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 short. And people, my pollinators were crawling around on their hands and knees trying to cover shoots. And like, it was miserable work that summer. And, you know, every year I can go through, like there was one year we, we, we had a rainstorm right in the middle of pollination and we missed a day. And so that just means that the next day is going to be double bag day. And, and we hung like 30,000 bags that day. Wow. I mean, it was insane <laughs> and tromping around in ankle deep mud. It was wild. So still sounds better than soybean breeding. <laughs> it is. It is. But you know, I think about everybody down to the, the pollinator, right? The, the local kids that we hired to go out and do that. Ever, there's been so many people who have had a hand in this. Um, and then, you know, across the globe, I couldn't have done it with, without a ton of people, whether it's people helping with marker projects and finding room for me in the lab or, you know, creating markers for this, that, and the other. Or um, it's just, it's been a huge, huge, huge team effort. And, and so very, very proud to be a part of that. I really love this story. I don't think it's too often we have a technology like this that can potentially change the industry, especially where the, you know, a lot of the wind events occur. I don't think, and we've kind of mentioned this on previous shows, you know, I don't, I don't think a lot of people have any idea what goes on in the background. Right. The years of time, money, and, and blood, sweat, and tears. I mean, this is a passion of yours, you know, yeah. kind of like I'm passionate about yeah. agriculture and crop production. You know, I, I think just having a little, an hour's worth of insight, hopefully people get a feel for how much time, love, and energy have been put into this. It's, it's pretty cool to hear. Yeah, the, yeah, it, yeah, ditto. <laughs> it's, uh, I, I think we, we all, uh, you know, we, we don't necessarily know how it ends up in the shed in the bag. And, and so the insight's really valuable and certainly exciting, but, um, we do a process tie at the end of our, um, at the end of our show. Um, my co-host and fearless leader, Andrew Penny, uh, I cash in my penny. So our goal is to have a few takeaways. This is maybe a slightly different, uh, uh, episode than, than traditionally, but, um, Andrew, I'd like to cash in my penny. You bet. So I, I tried to approach this from the grower perspective. You know, there was a number of things that I took away, but I'm, I'm kind of a, a nerd when it comes to science stuff. So I tried to approach this from the grower perspective and, you know, tried to pick three main points that I thought would impact their management style or their farming operation. So I, I think the first one that kind of stood out, you know, we kind of talked about lignin. You know, it sounds like we're currently doing research on this, but at the current moment in time, we believe there's less lignin within the short corn products which is obviously going to impact digestibility, silage quality. Um, And so I think that's promising. You know, you look at the number of guys across the state or growers across the state that they use corn, you know, for for feeding purposes, uh, silage purposes. I I think that's pretty promising. Um, Another one is I think, you know, there's always concern when we bring new products out about the germplasm pool or, you know, how's this going to compare to conventional corn? You know, I, I think it's good that you touched on, and hopefully, it makes growers feel better that this is the same germplasm pool as tall corn, right? So it, it's we're not we're not starting over. I mean, obviously, it's it's a new new technology, but it's it's still from the same germplasm pool, right? So yeah. you guys did everything possible to maintain yields and and keep the the quality products that that you have. And and second, you know, we often get the question about ear height and plant height, and so you kind of address that. You know, we we got maximum of of what seven feet. A minimum of, you know, the goal is six, right? Yep. And then the goal of ear height is 24 inches, right? 
So, so yeah, we, we got, we got a number of, through the breeding processes, um, you know, you can make selection so that we can, uh, increase the, the likelihood that we'll, we'll reach those, uh, ideal plant in ear, ear heights. And so I, I think that should, uh, make growers feel comfortable as they move forward. Absolutely. Ty, any, uh, any other key takeaways you want our listeners to have? I, we've, we've done a good job, but any other, uh, well, clearly you need to have more plant breeders on your show. Um, <laughs> no, uh, I appreciate the opportunity. Um, and, and yeah, I appreciate, you know, just the acknowledgement and the opportunity to talk about all the behind the scenes stuff that goes into what an R and D operation is. Right. I mean, it's kind of like, uh, on a football team, right? You got the glory boys, they get to stand up and take all the credit. Hey, look at how great this stuff is. And then you got the special team squad that's out here, you know? <laughs> yeah. And so kicks the winning field yeah, goal. You know, we just, we, it's been, uh, it, it is a job of passion, right? We do it because we want the answer. I want to know why. I want to know why not. I want to understand how. Um, so to take something that is, just a question and then to try and drive it to a commercial product is not lost on me. Like that's, that's really cool. Not many people get to do that. So I hope that, uh, I hope that folks are willing to give us a shot. I think that it's going to be a really interesting tool for them to consider. And, and yeah, I, I you know, where the, where the future goes, like let's shake the eight ball every year or so and see what happens, I guess. Yeah, no, I, I, I greatly appreciate it. I, I, we joked before we started the podcast that we should have recorded lunch. We, um, as a, as a group and, and some other people joined us for lunch and it was interesting because really the roots of this go back, what? 12, 13 years ago. Yeah. yeah. Fast, yeah. Fascinating. And, and, and I mean, there's just a, just a ton has, has gone into it. So, um, Ty, thank you for your time today. Yeah, and, definitely. and, and more importantly, thank you for, uh, over a decade's worth of work to get this product to where it is. Um, Andrew, as we get ready to wrap up today and what a, what a great episode, uh, have really enjoyed, um, Ty and Ty's story, give our audience a teaser about who's going to be joining us next week. Yeah, so I'm super excited to uh, have uh, the expert on Pythium and Phytophthora on, who is a graduate from the Ohio State. The Ohio I State. I had this in Cornell, uh, <laughs> now, now a professor at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. I uh, am very rarely intimidated, <laughs> but uh, Cornell, uh, Cornell will be a, a, a fun one. So yeah, looking forward to it. Ty, thank you. Andrew, thank you. Uh, appreciate it. Uh, we will uh, we'll certainly um, let our listeners know how to how to follow you on on social media and and we'll maybe be, we'll uh, attach that paper too, so we we can uh, <laughs> yeah, and can... your email address <laughs> so you can get all the questions about uh, what they read. But no, appreciate it, guys. Thank you very much. See yeah. you. Thank you for joining us on another episode of A Penny for Your Thoughts. We love your feedback. Please email us at apennyforyourthoughts at gmail.com. That's a penny, the number four, your thoughts at gmail.com. Or reach out to Andrew and I on our social media. Thank you for tuning in.